Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Daniel. Just be ready there. Uh, we have been in a, uh, a new sermon series, rather recent, entitled, Blessed Are the Persecuted. And what we're doing in this series is focusing on different Bible characters. And right now we're in the Old Testament. We'll be eventually moving to the new. Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith. And we're doing this in order to learn two things. First, how God uses persecution, how God uses adversity for the spiritual benefit of His child, but also how He uses it to advance His kingdom, to advance the gospel of Christ, the message of salvation. And then we're discovering when we hit times of persecution, difficulty, adversity, how are we to respond in a godly, Christ-like manner so that we are a, a testimony uh, for Jesus? And of course, the motivation for doing all of this is the increasing hostility that we are experiencing in the United States of America in these days towards the Christian faith. And we're not anticipating that to lessen. We're anticipating that hostility to escalate. Therefore, as believers, uh, we need uh, to be ready. We need to be prepared to respond uh, to future hostility, persecution, uh, in a, again, godly, Christ-like manner. Uh, so far, we've looked at um, uh, Joseph, we've looked at David, and we've looked at Jeremiah. And then in the last message, we began looking at Daniel, and we will finish his story uh, today in the lessons we learn from Daniel. So I do hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. Now, let me briefly review what we've seen so far, just to highlight the main points, and, and sort of let me put it in the context of a real possible situation. The last three days, I was in Florida, and I was speaking at a conference for all of the pregnancy centers uh, that are there in the state of Florida. It was a wonderful meeting. Uh, we saw God's anointing and blessing. And one of the, the real concerns in that conference, and, and I've shared this here with y'all in the past, is uh, just recently in the states of California, Illinois, and Hawaii, all three of these states have enacted laws. And these are laws that were passed by their legislators, signed by the governor. They're in place now to be enforced. So in those three states, this law mandates that Christian pregnancy centers, like our Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic, mandated to provide the women that come into us information about where and how to obtain an abortion. Now, of course, that is a violation of our religious liberty. That is a violation of our conscience under the Lordship of Christ. These ministries were established because we believe that abortion is the slaughter of the most innocent and defenseless member of the human family. And we not only have compassion for those little ones, but for the women who suffer abortion and are being exploited by the abortionists. And we reach out to them with uh, wonderful post-abortive ministries to let them uh, bring them to the healing and forgiveness uh, of Jesus. So, let me just use that as an example. Let's say a similar law like that was passed in the state of Georgia. 
And, of course, our church operates Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic. If that were to happen, let me just speak for myself. I'll make this very, very personal. I could not comply. This would be a point where I would uh, graciously, humbly, but lovingly, but firmly say I must practice civil disobedience and therefore not uh, uh, adhere to this law. Well, that would put me into some trouble. Uh, Probably eventually I would be held in contempt uh, by the courts. And then probably at some point I would be thrown in jail. Uh, And again, we're not talking about things theoretically. This is where we are. I mean, California, Illinois, Hawaii, they're facing the reality of this. And that could spread. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real possibility. So let's say your pastor is in jail. Well, what, what have we learned so far from Joseph, David, and Jeremiah that would give me strength in that very difficult situation? Remember, we, we learned three lessons from Joseph. The first lesson we learned from Joseph is that when you hit a time of persecution or, or just tremendous adversity where, where it hurts and you're very perplexed, that we're to trust God even when we cannot see any rhyme or reason for what's happening. We can, we can trust God that He is ultimately in control. And that there's nothing that could ever touch my life. There's nothing that ever could touch the church's life that God did not allow, that God did not permit for, for what? My ultimate good, your ultimate good, and the greater glory of His kingdom in the advance of the gospel. Now, I may not see that initially. It may, in fact, it may seem like it's going the other direction. But Joseph taught us, no, I can trust God's sovereignty. That he is under, he has everything in control. He's got my back. And I can, I, can, I can relax and rest in faith in him. The second thing we learned in Joseph, that when you're in a time like that, you're to choose righteousness. Even though right now there may not seem to be any expectation of reward in this life. In other words, you know, at that point, if I were sitting in jail, my obedience, what would have been the, the, the consequences of my obedience? Jail time. Well, that doesn't seem like a great reward, does it? So often, we are put in situations as believers where when we choose to trust God, as we talked about, sang about earlier, and obey God, it puts us in a very painful situation. And so what do you do? And we, t- we talked about th- those 13 long years of suffering with Joseph, where he taught us what I like to call just that patient plodding of faith. You know, he just took one moment at a time, one day at a time. So what did he do? He says, I'm just going to choose to do the right thing to do in this particular situation. So when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, it was what? I'm going to be a righteous man in Potiphar's house. I'm going to be a man of integrity. I'm going to serve Potiphar well. When he was thrown into prison, he didn't throw a pity party. He didn't whine. He said, I'm going to choose righteousness in this prison. He looked around him to see who he could minister to. He got involved in the lives of others. Remember, he was even noticed by the jailer and given a a position of greater ministry uh, to the other uh, prisoners. And then the third thing we learned from Joseph is that I'm to hope in God's promise, even when there may not appear to be any hope of deliverance. 
that, that when I hit a situation where, from my perspective, it looks like a human impossibility, well, I've got to remember, wait a minute, there's the divine impossibility for God to break His Word. So am I going to light here, focusing on the, what I see as the human impossibility, falling into despair, worry, fear, anxiety? Or am I going to turn my thoughts, my heart from that and place them on God, a God of integrity, a God who keeps His promises, a God who will cause this situation, although I can't see it right now, to work for my good and His ultimate, ultimate glory. And then in David, we saw how God used His persecution, used His adversity to purify His people. And if we could just sort of sum up the lesson with David this way. Remember we said he'll use hostility toward us. He'll use adversity, difficulty to get us so low that we don't have any place to look but up. Because our tendency, let's be honest, our tendency when we hit trouble is to look this way. Look horizontally for human support, for some sort of human crutch that I can lean on. God says, no, 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 no. And not that there's not a place for us to support one another, but God wants our instinctive response when we hit trouble to be to look up. Realize He ultimately is our help. He is our hope. And then, I, th- I think probably the most precious lesson we learned from David. Remember when David hit his lowest point? Remember we talked about how he crawled literally into that cave of Adullam in the Judean wilderness Uh, a fugitive on the run, public enemy number one for absolutely nothing he had done wrong. And remember we talked about how depressed he was, how discouraged he was. I mean, everything had been taken away from him, material prosperity, separated from his wife, spiritual mentor, friend. He was totally abandoned, totally isolated in that dark, damp cave. And remember we saw... And it's a precious, precious truth. God's purpose in all of that was to get David to the place where exalting God's glory was more important than escaping that cave. And David came to that place. We saw it in some of the Psalms that he wrote during that period of his life where he eventually got to the point. And he says, my heart's goal, objective, is to exalt you. And if it's to stay in this cave the rest of my life, so be it. In other words, and it's probably one of the most difficult places for us to arrive as believers. God wants us to bring us to the place where we can leave the outcomes to God. Why can I leave the outcome to God? Because the one who loves me most knows what is best. He's wiser than I am. He's smarter than I am. And so God wants to get us to the place where we just give Him the freedom to determine what the outcome of our circumstances and situations are. When we find ourselves in crisis and trouble, whether it's physical or, uh, or some financial crisis or it is hostility, persecution, whatever it might be, God, I can give the outcome to you, which frees me to what? Focus on Him. And to honor and glorify Him, knowing again the one who knows me or loves me most knows what is best for me. And then what did we learn in Jeremiah? This, this meant a lot to me personally. What we learned in Jeremiah is that when you're in a time of difficulty, especially persecution, it's okay 
in your pain, in your perplexity, it's okay to question God. It's okay to doubt God. Remember, we we saw how Jeremiah, 50 years of ministry, five decades, saw no fruit. I mean, this man was continually dogged by depression, discouragement, disappointment with God. Remember we talked about, I showed you in the Scripture, this man suffered more persecution for his faith in God than any man that's ever lived on planet Earth in terms of over a long period of time. Now, of course, no one could compare to the suffering of our Savior, but we're talking about a man who suffered persecution for 50 years. And, and, and we talked about in those 50 years, and this is amazing about Jeremiah, he never once falters in the eye of the public. He stands toe-to-toe with kings, with princes, with religious leaders, with the children of Israel, pronouncing judgment on them for their sin. He's like a rock of Gibraltar. I mean, he's unmovable. But then, when you see this man alone with God, he's a different character. He throws pity parties. We saw that. He questions God. He acknowledges his... But here was the key, right? It's okay to question God. It's okay to doubt God. It's okay to throw a pity party. Just do it in God's presence. Take it to God. Because God's the only one that can resolve it. And what we discovered was, as God took all the supports away from Jeremiah and isolated this man as a result of hostility and persecution, it drove this man to God's Word. It drove this man to prayer. And this man developed an intimacy with God that few ever experience. That was built on a total honesty and transparency with God. Where he would resolve that alone with God, and then continue to go out in the public, and be that fearless lion for God. And now we come to Daniel. And what are we learning in Daniel? Well, there'll be a number of lessons, but in that first part of the message, I do want to review that very, very quick. That's basically the first side of your notes. Um, We saw how we can be guaranteed that when persecution comes, hostility comes, or adversity comes, you can't stop God from accomplishing His plan. No matter how bleak things may look. Let's, let's just review this very, very quickly. Uh, begin with the introduction. And there may have been some of you not here two weeks ago uh, when I shared this. Uh, there were several deportations of Jewish captives to Babylon, both before and after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Remember, keep in mind that uh, Jeremiah and Daniel would have been contemporaries. That da- Jeremiah would have been uh, an elderly man. And uh, Daniel would have been very young. And as we see here in his deportation, he would have probably been only about 15 or 16 years old. And, of course, it was Jeremiah that warned the children of Israel, if you do not repent, turn from God, he's going to use the Babylonians as a rod of iron to chasten you, to discipline you, to judge you, which happened. And the Babylonians came down from the north, conquered the children of Israel, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, uh, including its walls, all of its fortified buildings, and the temple itself. Uh, but uh, 
there were, they, the Babylonians took captives both before and after that. And notice, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was their Babylonian names, they were part of the very first deportation after the initial siege and capture of Jerusalem, which occurred in 605 B.C. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, they were probably 15 or 16 years old when they were literally, just to try to put yourself in their shoes now, these young guys were literally ripped from their families in Jerusalem to serve in the Babylonian king's administration. They had to learn a new language, new customs, and we see, saw that Daniel served in both the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires well into his 80s. He never returned to his homeland. He died on foreign soil. And the first six chapters of the book of Daniel is the story of how God used uh, these men in a culture hostile to their faith to bring the knowledge of the one true living God to a heathen world. Each of the first six chapters tell a separate story with a final concluding paragraph which summarizes the impact of their testimony. Now, this is the thing you need to understand. Again, I'm reviewing, so I'm not going to go into detail like I did a couple of weeks ago. But this is the thing you need to see. Sadly, 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 these first six chapters of Daniel are typically seen as nothing more than just a string, a series of great, great Sunday school stories that teach us how to pray so that we don't get burned up or eaten by lions. That's sort of how these are viewed. And we totally miss, totally miss the primary truth of what's being communicated in these first six chapters chapters. And what we need to understand is that God raised up the nation of Israel for one primary purpose, to be his witness to the nations, to bring his salvation to all the peoples of the earth. But Israel, as we know, totally lost sight of their mission. Everything became about them. They totally perverted their religion, became self-centered, and they ended up becoming a greater mission field than the Gentile nations that surrounded them. And so God is forced to judge his people. And it appears all is lost. Israel has failed in their mission. And God's purposes have been thwarted. But no, not the case. Because here's the amazing thing about the book of Daniel. That shows us just how great our God is. God accomplishes in these first six chapters. God accomplishes through Daniel and his three friends what the children of Israel could not accomplish over hundreds of years. And what was that? While they are in captivity to God's enemies. In captivity to God's enemies. Suffering persecution at the hand of those enemies. God uses these men to make his glory known to the entire earth, to all the peoples of the earth. And you see that in the structure of this chapter. Each chapter has a story. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Each has a story. And then at the very end of every chapter, and we saw this, we read all of this, the end of each chapter gives the impact of the testimony that came out of that story. And so just real quick, we're not going to read the verses again. We don't have time. Chapter 1, what's the story? These young teenage boys. 
they go into a three-year educational program. They change their names. They were named after Babylonian gods. The purpose of this training was to re-indoctrinate these guys, to move them from their faith in the one true living God to embrace the culture of Babylon and their teachings. So they learned the Babylonian language, Babylonian religion. They, they studied all sorts of things, astrology, just everything under the sun. And what you see bottom line in that first chapter is these three teenagers, they excel in their studies, but they never refuse to compromise their convictions. They, ne- they never, ever compromise God's Word. They stay true to their faith in God. And by the way, I've told my daughter this. She, uh, Caitlin right now is going for her master's in social work at the University of South Carolina. And I said, this is a wonderful model for all Christian students in public schools or universities that are being hit with so much ungodly teaching, how to excel, but at the same time, never compromise your convictions. And when necessary, stand alone from God and even stand alone to the point where, yes, it's going to hurt, you're going to get mocked, you'll be the laughing stock, but you're going to stay true to your God. And so that's what they did. So they go through, and what's the result? The result is, remember, all the, all the, 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 the entire school is brought to Nebuchadnezzar for him to examine these guys. And he discovers what? That Daniel and his three friends, they're brighter, they're smarter, they have greater integrity than all the others. He said, these guys are the best. And he brings them to serve in his administration. So the first, first step in chapter 1 is, Daniel and these men, they capture the, ten, the king's attention because they stand out above the others. And then you go to the second chapter. What do you have in the second chapter? Remember, Daniel interpreted the king's dream as a result of a prayer meeting that he had with his three friends. So what was the result of that? Well, then you see that Nebuchadnezzar suddenly now is able to make a connection. Oh, yeah, now I understand. These guys are what they are. They're the special guys that they are. They stand above everybody because of the God they worship. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is not a worshiper of their God, but he makes that connection. That's what makes these guys special. It's their faith. And then you go to chapter 3 and what you have. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And they say, King, God may deliver us. He may not deliver us. But let me tell you one thing. We're not bowing to any other God but the true God. And they have violated the king's command. And he throws them in a fiery furnace. And God miraculously delivers them. What is the result? You go to the end of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar sends out a decree to the a whole known world. This is the world empire, Babylon. So this didn't just go out to Babylon, but all the nations, all the countries, all the peoples they had defeated and conquered. And he said, I'm sending this decree out. Nobody, nobody better say anything bad about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because if you do, I'm not only going to kill you, I'm going to take down your house, kill all your family. And notice, think about it, what just happened. All of a sudden, these Jews 
who never accepted their mission from God to make him known to a lost world. Suddenly now, all these foreigners are running to a Jew, trying to find a Jew, trying to find a Hebrew. Because I don't want to do something that's going to get me dead, my family dead, my, my house leveled. So now all of a sudden these Jews are in the most prominent, influential position in the entire empire where everybody's coming to them and they have an opportunity to tell them about their faith, about the one true living God. And then you go to chapter 4. And this is where Daniel, he actually confronts Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a prideful, you are an arrogant man. Now he does it in a very loving, compassionate way, very gentle, tender. And he says, you need to turn from that. And turn to the true living God. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. And God chastens Nebuchadnezzar. You remember, takes him into seven years of insanity. Brings him out of that insanity. And what is the response? And I will read this because it is so marvelous. Because now you have this heathen king coming to faith in the one true God. Look at the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What hast thou done? And at that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all of his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now you have the one true faith becoming the most dominating influence in the entire Babylonian empire. Then you go to chapter 5. This takes us down a number of years. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar is on the throne. He has not embraced faith in God. Matter of fact, he's making a mockery out of God in an orgy where he's using the temple utensils uh, to, to mock God. You remember, that's when you have the handwriting on the wall. Can you imagine that? Okay, they're in the middle of this orgy, drunken feast, and then all of a sudden this hand, I bet you could hit a pin drop. And the queen mother says, hey, there's this old guy named Daniel. He can interpret things like this. So they go get Daniel. So Daniel comes in, and Belshazzar says, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. I mean, he promised him all these gifts if you... And Daniel looked at him. It's amazing the boldness of this man. He said, King, you can keep your stinking gifts. He didn't say stinking, but that, 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 that was sort of the, that was the tone. He said, you can keep your gifts. I don't want your gifts, but I'll give you the interpretation. Of course, the interpretation was what? The kingdom's going to be taken from you what? This very night, which happened. The Medes and Persians overran the Babylonians and overtook the city. And Belshazzar lost his life that night. And then you go to six, and that's what Daniel and the lion's den. This is a man in his 80s now. Darius, Mede, Persian, is on the throne. 
And what is the end result? You know the story, but the key is the impact of the testimony. And look at the very end of chapter 6. Then Darius, verse 25, then Darius, king, wrote to all, all, notice, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Sirius the, the Persian. Folks, I, I hope you're catching this. This is one of the most remarkable testimonies you'll see in all the Bible. You flat can't stop God. God's going to accomplish His purposes one way or the other. Now, you can cooperate with Him and be part of that, or you can get left behind in the dust and miss the great reward and the blessings of it. Now, very, very quickly, and I can do this quickly, the applications we learn from this story. And you'll notice there in your notes I have seven. Let me just run through these very, very quickly as we close. Number one, and I'll, the children of Israel were judged by God through the Babylonian captivity because they forgot they were chosen by God to bring God's salvation to a lost world. As we mentioned, became self-centered in the practice of their religion. Believers today are to be careful not to make the same mistake. We need to be careful as God's people who have been given a commission to take the gospel to the world, that we don't lose sight of that mission. And where we turn Christianity, where it's all about me. It's all about me and my trials, my pain, my difficulty. And, and, and we don't see, no, it's not, it's not about me, it's about him. And, and my life and all those trials, all those difficulties, those are just tools, instruments to make him known to provide me a platform to share the truth of Jesus. Number two, the integrity, the integrity of the believer is what God uses to catch the attention of a watching world. Integrity is maintaining a respectful attitude toward all, being faithful in all things, living a pure life, and maintaining a consistent walk with God. Uh, let me just read verses 11 and 12 from that 1 Peter 2 passage. Beloved, I urge you as aliens, foreigners, strangers on this earth. Because our home is what? Our citizenship is in heaven. You are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Notice now, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, if you're going to be persecuted, make sure it's not, you're not being persecuted for something stupid you've done. Make sure if you're getting persecuted, it's because of your love for Jesus, your faith in Jesus, and you maintain your integrity. Number three, I love this one. Faith. We've already alluded to it. Never demands deliverance or gives in to suffering, but gives God the freedom 
to arrange the all things of my life in the way he deems best to put Jesus on display. The Philippians passage says it better than, any, than I could, anybody else could say it. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's awaiting trial before the Emperor Nero, one of the worst men that ever lived on planet Earth. He does not know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He has no earthly idea. So you wonder, I wonder how Paul is praying in this situation. I wonder what his expectation of God is in this situation. What he's desiring God to do in this situation. And he tells us. He says, this is my earnest hope and expectation. That here in this prison, I shall not be put to shame. But that now, as always, Jesus would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, there is a man who had learned to be content in any and every circumstance. This was a man who had learned, I don't have to focus on outcomes. I don't have to try to use God as my tool to get what I want in the outcome I want in this particular crisis or situation. That's, he's a sovereign God. Those are his decisions. And as he gave, released those outcomes to God, as he gave God freedom to arrange on, that gave Paul the freedom to maintain his focus on God, Amen. not an outcome. God. And as a result, he doesn't whine in the prison. He says, okay, I don't necessarily understand what's going on. Again, one of those times where you have to trust God's sovereignty when you see no rhyme or reason and choose righteousness, even when you see no expectation of reward, hope in God's promises, even when you see no hope of little. He says, well, God's put me in this prison, so by golly, I'm going to get rooted in this prison, and I'm going to blossom in this prison for Jesus Christ. And he's chained to those praetorian guards. And because this man has given his outcomes to God and he can focus on Jesus, he says, hey, God's brought these guys to me to witness. The most elite fighting force in Rome. Caesar's own personal bodyguard. Some of those guys come to know Jesus. As a result, the last chapter, he says even the gospel has penetrated the very household of Caesar. He also says, because of my witness to the Praetorian Guard and my testimony in prison, he says, all of Rome is talking about Jesus. So the Romans, they throw Paul in prison, thinking they're going to shut him up, thinking they're going to squash the advance of the gospel, and all they do is advance the gospel. And that's why Paul is able to say in that same first chapter, hey, my circumstances, my imprisonment, it's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now Jesus is the talk of all of Rome. He's, the, he's, he's the, the, the leading, trending topic right now in Rome. Just amazing how God will use us when we give him the freedom to do so. Look at this fourth lesson. Faith means... Trusting and obeying God, this is very important, trusting and obeying God regardless of my feelings within, regardless of my feelings within me, the circumstances around me, or the consequences before me. 
Faith means trusting and obeying God. Regardless of my feelings within me, the circumstances around me, or the consequences before me. And probably we saw this even more, more so in the life of Jeremiah than you even see in Daniel and his three friends. That 1 Peter 4, 19, let me just read it for you. This is, listen to this, little verse, but very, very precious verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word entrust in, in, in Bible days, New Testament days, it was a banker's term. It was a banker. It, means, it meant to, to deposit something for safekeeping. Isn't that great? In other words, Peter's saying, hey, and this was a man that knew suffering. The New Testament church was under persecution at this time at the hands of Nero. And Peter is saying, when you suffer, when you experience hostility or, 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 or adversity, whatever it might be, you can entrust your life to God. You can submit your life to God for safekeeping. And how do you demonstrate that you're actually doing that? That last little phrase. You keep doing what's right. You keep trusting. You keep obeying. Because you know your life is entrusted with God. Do you know what that means? That means when you boil it down, because of redemption in Jesus, I'll never get over this. I will praise God. I pra- I lit- I'm not even about. I praise God every day for this. God loves me as much as He loves His Son Jesus, and that's true of every believer. Not only does He love me as much as He loves Jesus, He is just as committed to protect me, to provide for me, to glorify me to finish my work that he's given me here on earth to do as he was committed to do the same for Jesus. I am indestructible until my work here on earth is done. And that's true of everything. Now, we can turn from God. We can fail to trust, fail to obey. We can experience God's discipline. We saw that, in the, see that in the church of Corinth. Some of them were taken out prematurely by God because of their unwillingness to trust and obey, because of their unwillingness to surrender themselves to finish the work that God had given them to do. But for those that entrust, give their lives to God for safekeeping to continue to do right. He won't let you down. Number five, number five. Persecution is used by God not only to purify His people, but to bring salvation to our persecutors. Persecution is used by God not only to purify His people, to bring salvation to our persecutors. Let me read those verses at 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. It says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. For what purpose? To suffer. To provide a backdrop. To make Jesus known to others. 
Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself. That same word. Entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. And when persecution comes, hostility comes, I'm going to be wounded. You're going to be wounded. But God is going to use our very wounds to make Christ known to the very people inflicting the pain to our lives. Why? Because he loves them. Jesus died for them, rose again for them. And you're saying, wait a minute, Andy. You're telling me that Jesus would allow me to get hurt in order to bring salvation to someone else? Duh! I mean, who is our master? What did he do? I mean, what is Christianity if it's not following him, denying self, taking up your cross to follow him regardless of the price and counting suffering for him and a badge of honor to wear. And then six, when persecuted, bless your persecutors. Never retaliate. Wait on God to vindicate. When persecuted, bless your persecutors. Never retaliate and wait on God to vindicate. Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And I love uh, 1 Peter 3, 9. Listen to this. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You want to be blessed by God? Then God says, somebody is out to hurt you. Don't hurt them back. Do good to them. Someone slandering you, don't insult them back. Don't try to get in a tit-for-tat with them. No, you bless them, and I, you'll get a blessing from God to be a blessing to others. And then a little bit farther, 17, never, never. Ne- you know what never means, right? Pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now hear me now. There will be a payday someday. God will right every wrong, every injustice. Don't think anyone's going to get away with anything. But that's God's business, not mine. I am in the business of making him known to others, even my persecutors, Perhaps even they will come to know Jesus and know his grace and ministry. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the very last truth. Number seven, when any earthly authority commands what is contrary to God's word, it is the duty of Christians to practice civil disobedience. To violate the king's command, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And to say, as the apostles did in Acts 5, we obey God rather than men. And folks, let me just tell you, we'll have time to amplify this going further in this study. But if you do not accept, if you do not accept 
the fact that there may come a day where you have to practice civil disobedience. Jesus Christ is not your Lord. He's not your Lord. Now, pray God that we never come to that day where, where we would have to make that choice. We want to pray that we be at peace with all men. We, that's why we pray for kings and authorities. But we know from church history that often that day does come. And there comes a time where you have to say, I'm going to obey God rather than men, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, just like Daniel did. Why was he thrown in the, Daniel, in the lion's den? They told him he couldn't pray any longer. So what did he do? Did he go hide out somewhere so nobody would see him? No. Here's a man in his 80s, and he didn't stop doing anything that he ever had done in the past. He went up to his room three times a day. He opened his window so everybody could see. He looked out that window toward the city of Jerusalem, and he prayed. Now, it had been very easy for him to say, well, I'm just not going to shut my window anymore, and I'll turn out the lights. I'll wait till I get in bed. I'll pray then. No one will know. Daniel said, no. God is my God. I worship him. I'm not ashamed, and no man's going to tell me how to worship. No man's going to tell me when and how to pray. So, God's good, amen? And God's great. You can't stop God. You can't stop God. And there's nothing God can't use in our lives for our good and His greater glory. As we enter a time of invitation, if you're a believer, what's God speaking to you? I hope you're being brought to that place where you say, God, I want to give you the freedom to arrange the affairs in my life that you deem best. I I want to stop looking for outcomes and be able to focus on you. Now, folks, hear me. Paul said, I've learned to be content. You don't learn that overnight. Andy Merritt has not arrived. I will admit, I aspire to that truth. But I'm not there yet, but I'm asking God, I'm asking God daily, take whatever measures necessary to get me to that place where I can truly release expectations to you, outcomes to you, where my focus is on you, leaving all the rest to you. So maybe it's just God, I'm not there, like Brother Andy's not there, Lord help us, I'll pray for Brother Andy, he'll pray for me, and I do pray for you. And uh, we're, we're in this thing together. If, if you are an unbeliever here today, I'm so glad you heard this message. Because what you heard is, not only does Jesus love you, that he died, was buried, and he rose again for your sins, to give you forgiveness, to give you new life. But you heard today what it means to follow Jesus. That it means that you deny yourself, take up your cross, and to follow him. That when you come to know Jesus... You're not just getting a ticket in heaven. You're bowing to him as Lord, as the authority over your life to follow him. And it's that Jesus that saves as you bring him into your heart and you bow to him. So please stand as the invitation is extended. I'll be here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. If you're desiring to unite with the church, uh, please come forward and we would love to uh, introduce you to the church family.